0: De familie maar gaan halen. Ja. This patient is dying. Cancer cells have spread throughout her body, and no treatment or therapy can help her. X-rays, chemotherapy, surgery all are useless. She understands that she is dying and has asked to have her life ended. The attending physician has agreed to kill this patient at her own request.
1: The mogelijkheid is. Blessing.
0: The patient's family has agreed to the termination and are saying their last goodbyes to the patient. The syringe you see being used contains the sedative sodium pentothal. This injection will put the patient into a deep sleep. The patient is now asleep. The doctor is picking up a second syringe which contains the drug curare. In a few minutes, this drug will paralyze the patient's heart and lung muscles. The action will be certain and final. just viewed illustrates graphically how certain lives are being terminated in Holland. Although the lethal injection is still not legal, the authorities are permissive. Incidents like this are a portal through which a phenomenon is entering the contemporary Western world, active euthanasia. In times past, a mortally ill person simply died, but with today's dramatic advancements in medical science, it is possible to keep people alive who, although they will never recover, Word in days gone by have simply died. People are also living longer, and there are many more cases of protracted terminal illness. As a consequence, man is now having to answer questions of life and death that have never been asked before in the context of the Western Hippocratic tradition. At this juncture in the 20th century, there is no way in which we can simply let these questions take care of themselves. They need to be accosted and answered, but who has the answers? Do we depend solely on our legislators in this arena? Should matters be left to the courts and the judges? Are these questions of social policy to be placed in the hands of the people to transact through conventional political processes? And what principles should guide us? Are we instructed by religious, philosophical principles? How far can we rely on the judgment of doctors and lawyers, professors and social theorists? Does common sense give us the answers? Meanwhile, as we've seen, lives are being terminated in the Netherlands. It is estimated that from 6,000 to 10,000 people a year avail themselves of euthanasia in a population of 13 million, and the trend is catching on in the United States and other industrialized nations.
2: I got my popularity, if you want, uh, years ago by writing a manual, justifiable euthanasia, on request of our Dutch Society for Foreign Euthanasia. Well, I don't think that uh, in the world of today there is a reason to keep uh, patients alive as long as doctors wish. I think that this uh, medical overtreatment uh, is not in favor of the human race. I think it's a reaction on the fact that we never accept that uh, we all will die in the end. In our hospital, uh, as you understand, the patients have the right to ask for active euthanasia. It's discussed uh, in, in, in almost all cases, uh, much earlier in their, during their disease and not uh, during the last days. We can do it by starting an infusion and the patient will die within a few hours. Personally uh, most of times I will give an injection which will uh, let die the patient uh, within uh, 10 minutes. Well as a
1: general term euthanasia is requested because a person is suffering unbearably and says, I cannot go on, I cannot bear this life anymore. The difficulty for the doctor is how to judge that kind of request. I remember a boy coming in here uh, saying, my girlfriend left me, could I have enough drugs to finish my life, you see, and at that point I will say, of course, I will say, no, and you are not competent to judge your condition and you are not competent to judge your future at this moment. And in between is, let's say, a grey zone where patients might do make decisions which are not my decisions, but which I can accept if, for instance, a young woman who has a malignant tumour in her leg and says, I can be cured if I have my leg amputated, but I've always been a ballet dancer and I don't want to live with one leg. It wouldn't be my decision, but I can accept hers.
0: If the medical profession as a whole takes this path, is it likely that opportunists will try to exploit the now hazy distinction between letting people die and killing them? These are the questions we're going to explore. In the end, it may well be your life or mine which is at stake. One of the most provocative proponents of legal suicide is Derek Humphrey. He believes the freedom to determine when one should die is an essential human right as fundamental and basic as the American pursuit of happiness.
3: The Hemlock Society serves to help people deal with their death today, uh, mainly through information. We publish drug charts of lethal drugs. We publish a book called Let Me Die Before I Wake, which is a suicide manual, how a terminally Ill person can end their life. But our long-term goal is to change the law so that you can Ask a doctor legally to help you to die. This was a cause that found me. I I didn't mean to get into this business at all. Uh, In 1975, my first wife was dying of cancer. And we weren't members of any right to die society. We had no particular beliefs on this. But one day after a terrible bout of illness, which almost ended her life, she turned to me and said, help me to die. And that was my introduction to the euthanasia question. She wasn't considering taking her life because of unremitting pain. She was thinking of taking her life because she didn't want to die in a drugged out state, because she was finding it increasingly difficult to see and think and read, uh, to converse. She was losing control of her bowels, losing control of her ability to walk across the room. And as she saw the deterioration came in, she wanted to leave. And one day she said, uh, you better go and get it. She picked up the cup of coffee and drank it very straight, straight down, determined to, to take it on. And she just said, goodbye, my love. Once more, she went unconscious. She breathed heavily for about 50 minutes and died. And I thought, a very courageous lady, what, what a dignified way to go. And three years after Jean's death, I published a book called Jean's Way, which was an account of our life i came to live in america about that time people approached me saying how do you do this thing what are the drugs what's the law help me in all different ways and so my second wife and i formed the national hemlock society in 1980 to deal with this question because nobody else was in america so uh, we have uh, grown accidentally from the back bedroom Of of my home on Saturday mornings answering a few letters into a national organization of 25,000 members, 35 chapters, um, known
0: all over the world for our work. Needless to say, Mr. Humphrey faces strong legal and philosophical opposition to his views on self-determinism and dying.
4: The Human Dignity Institute was established back in 1985 The name was inspired uh, as a response to the name of the bill that the euthanists had put forward. They called it the Humane and Dignified Death Act. Now, if life has intrinsic dignity, if we're gonna treat individuals with dignity and respect, uh, we ought not treat them as we do dogs. We ought not eliminate them when their time comes. It's critically important that there be Uh, legislative uh, efforts, that there be societal efforts, that there be educational efforts to protect those individuals. They're at risk now. We're seeing cases, um, they're coming in a machine gun pattern. The Bouvier case, the uh, Rhoda's case in, in Colorado, the Anna Hearth case in San Diego, a movement that has emerged that wants to change our laws to make this a commonplace event where the elderly, the handicapped would
3: basically be eliminated because they're no longer, quote, useful. We believe that a person who is dying of a physical illness, uh, has fought hard to live, lived a good life, is a good person, perfectly balanced, wants to die quietly at home in their bed with their loved ones, perhaps close, deserves the right to assistance in suicide. And this moral right should now be made a legal right What the euthanasia movement seeks to do
4: is eliminate suffering by eliminating the sufferer. And this, again, strikes at the very heart of our society. By eliminating suffering through eliminating the sufferer, is, uh, it's about as logical as uh, giving someone a lobotomy
3: to cure memory loss. People nowadays want to follow their own lifestyle. Want to govern their own lives. We, we're, we're not hostage to doctors and politicians and priests as we were in olden times. People are autonomous and they want to right to, to choose to die in peace and dignity. Um, most of us feel it's an idea whose time has come.
0: It becomes plain that the question probes the ultimate boundaries of social thought. Is there a right of the state to sanction killing other than as punishment or self-defense.
5: Euthanasia has raised its ugly head at the present time largely because of the increasing secularization of society. The basic idea is that an individual has the right to do anything he wishes with his own body. And now that society has applied this principle in the case of the pregnant woman, it's going to be applied at the other end of the spectrum. It's going to apply to older people, to those who suffer from intractable pain, to those who are terminally ill, and ultimately to those who don't seem to have a great deal of social reason for existence. Now the position that I represent is the classic one, biblical morality. What I'm doing is based
2: upon my humanistic view. So, Doing so, uh, I'm not stopped by the meaning that we never could take the life of anybody uh, because
1: it was given by God. I couldn't stick to one belief or one religion. And if I have to be put in in, in one pigeonhole, uh, I would call myself an agnostic. Of course, the rise of humanism, which
6: depends uh, only on reason and science, uh, was contributory to this uh, horrendous new death movement. And, uh, of course, uh, once we decided to kill our unborn children, uh, we should have expected euthanasia. As the great uh, Protestant uh, missionary doctor, Albert Schweitzer, said, Uh, If man loses respect for one uh, part of human life, he will soon lose respect for all of human life. That's the kind of world we're living in today. The quality of life concept is a very dangerous one because it means that some people are expendable, that we value human life in terms of uh, how individual persons can perform the contribution they can make.
5: To use a theological term, God has made man a steward of his own life. Man didn't create it in the first place. He has no right to end it. The Christian knows that he has been bought with a price that is not his own. Man needs to follow those eternal values which are connected with the gift that he has received.
6: For 20 centuries we have uh, been guided by the Judeo-Christian ethic which means that every human life is to be protected, is to be respected, that no matter at what stage human life or what contribution individual human beings can make, they are protected under the law and in the general morality. Now, today, we have organizations like the Hemlock Society who uh, give out things like this, a cup, Hemlock, it says, the Hemlock Society, uh, a good life, a good death. The cynicism is indescribable that we should use this cup to foster a movement that society has rejected for 22 centuries.
3: The main reason I feel that we're discussing the euthanasia question in our societies today is that it's the last great social progress that that modern people want, if you look back uh, the 30s, we had the big argument over easier divorce. Would it destroy the family unit? Would it destroy marriage? Uh, we reformed, and it didn't. Then we had the birth control debate in the 40s and 50s. Would it make people more pr- promiscuous and, and uh, a lot of babies out of wedlock? It really didn't make any difference. Uh, in the 60s, we had the abortion debate, 60s and 70s. Um, An abortion is now approved in all Western societies. Then we had the gay rights Uh, argument in the 70s and now consenting homosexuals can uh, carry out their preferences and the euthanasia question I think is the last big piece of social reform because you've got to remember that people today are better informed.
5: The euthanasia question reflects two worldviews one of them is that man emerged from the primordial slime and that we're little more than naturalistic entities any values we have are values that we ourselves have generated. This existential notion really means that there are no values in the universe. We make our life what we want it to be, and since we created it, we can destroy it. Now, that's one worldview. The other worldview is that we are a great deal more than materialistic entities. We are beings created in the image of God responsible to the one who made us. We didn't bring ourselves into the world. And we have no business getting rid of ourselves. Our values have been given to us. They come from the outside, from a higher source. We're not free to manipulate them. And you know, that's not only biblical, it's fundamental to American constitutional law. America was founded on the premise of inalienable rights, one of which is life. These rights were not given to us by any government or social system. They came from a creator. All of this means that every human being has rights no one can properly take from him. And that includes the person himself.
0: Active euthanasia or assisted suicide isn't just an academic question. It has practical implications for young and old in every condition of life. That's why it's necessary to ask what its effect will be on society as a whole.
7: In my mid-teens, I had decided to commit suicide because I was so extremely depressed. I had a very bad childhood. I was abused in every way, physically, sexually, and verbally um i had taken an extreme amount of water pills and diet pills to try to give myself a heart attack but nothing had happened i just got sick then uh, later i had taken formaldehyde and rat poison and same thing i was fine then i tried cutting my wrists twice and was unsuccessful the bleeding coagulated My last attempt, I had taken sodium cyanide. This was the worst one. I wasn't found for, I think, about an hour. It must have been at least an hour afterwards before I was brought into the hospital. And they pumped my stomach. And I was in intensive care for a few days.
8: I'd like to
3: make clear my views on the morality of suicide, and assisted suicide. You have the right to suicide, uh, morally if you can't cope with it. But I believe you should prevent suicide wherever possible.
7: I understand there's an organization called the Hemlock Society that actually publishes information telling teenagers how to kill themselves. I think that's atrocious. That makes me so angry. There's a lot of teenagers who want to kill themselves but they're afraid because they don't know how. So they get their hands on that and learn how to do it and they're gone. We need to spend our energies helping these people find reasons to live, not help them commit suicide.
3: I believe in suicide intervention, but if people want to commit suicide at the end of the day, then so be it.
7: If it ever becomes legal to assist people in suicide, I think many people will avail themselves to that. I know that when I was 16, trying to kill myself, if it had been legal, then I would have done it. That would have been the easy way out. Looking back on my suicide attempts, I think how much I would have missed if I had succeeded. My life is meaningful to me now. I have purpose and I'm excited. I'm glad to be alive.
0: Whatever the moral question about euthanasia, one thing is certain. The lethal needle is in the hands of the medical profession. It makes sense to inquire how thoughtful medical doctors view this ultimate weapon. Well, about um,
9: 16 years ago, I was for for the first time confronted with uh, a peculiar attitude and mentality, and some facts. I mean, the denial of uh, life-saving help to some groups of patients, like uh, Mongoloid children or mentally handicapped people or very old people, not very old, even above uh, uh, 75. An elderly patient who, uh, when admitted to the hospital, refused not only to take medicine, he also refused to, to drink orange juice because he was afraid of euthanasia. But uh, uh, going uh, beyond the personal experiences, you can rely on uh, on studies which uh, have been done by two general practitioners and by, by Mrs. Wagner uh, at the hospital and by general practitioners at uh, uh, homes for the elderly. And uh, what was revealed was that 97% of the inhabitants of the homes for senior citizens are Against active euthanasia because, as they declared, uh, later on, when they w- won't be uh, in command of the situation anymore, their lives might be put to an end against their
10: will. Oliver Wendell Holmes was the first person to coin the term euthanasia when he intended it to mean a good death, a peaceful death. I think when most people talk about euthanasia, in the active form, they're they're meaning that some deliberate specific act terminates a patient's life, as opposed to allowing a patient to die uh, by natural causes or by the complications of illness. I have no doubt that physicians, given legal permission to perform euthanasia, will do it.
11: Holland is leading, I regret to say, in the euthanasia movement in the world. I think um, for a great, um, a great part, it's due to our judicial system where the judges are free to uh, interpret the law as they think right. The only way that the, the patient can have confidence in his doctor is that the doctor promises never to kill, not on, on demand, uh, not before birth, not after birth, never. That's the only way that uh, the doctor can be trusted.
9: Gunning, whom you interviewed, uh, was the first to warn about those facts. For instance, when the mass killings at the Terp elderly people's home in The Hague were revealed, 20 people perished. The patients are aware, and unfortunately they are right, that, that the doctors who are ready to uh, put a patient to death on his own request sometimes do it also without his will against his will and without his knowledge so this is the the source of distrust
11: euthanasia statistics actually do not exist because um, um, far by far most doctors um, practice euthanasia and then say natural death on the death certificate. So there's no way to to
0: really check. The American Medical Association has taken an official position against the practice of euthanasia by the medical profession. For understandable reasons, the association does not feel that medical doctors should be qualified as potential killers. They want to be perceived as healers. And then we have the whole question of who should be authorized to assist in suicide or to apply the lethal needle. We
3: believe that any licensed physician ought to be able to help somebody to die if they are morally comfortable with it.
10: A so-called industry for performing euthanasia might rise. Just as there are abortion clinics, and there are hospices for terminal care of, of cancer patients. In other words, there's no reason why euthanasia will not become a specialty. People do it particularly well know the complications, know how to counsel family members, know how to deal with the legal issues, the financial issues. So if indeed euthanasia does become accepted in society, it is quite possible that there will become so-called specialists in this. I think we need to start by asking
0: what's good medicine? How much real need is there for euthanasia? To a significant extent, this is a pain management question. Let's ask Dr. Connolly. I think pain has become the main
12: focus of the euthanasia argument for a number of reasons. I think, first of all, of course, the prospect of having to, to lie in unrelieved pain for weeks or months is a, a, indeed a very terrible and frightening one. There is no justification for terminating a patient's life uh, in order to relieve his pain. Uh, it's well known that the vast majority of patients can have their pain very effectively controlled
3: by physicians who know what they're doing. She had good pain management, so she wasn't suffering in that sense. But a lot of pain is telling you that you're dying, even though you can uh, control it with narcotic drugs, and she had plenty of those. Um, But the quality of her life was unacceptable to her. I I think one
12: has to go to Uh, A good hospice and see how patients are helped to deal with these things, how the judicious use of certain antibiotics for instance can get rid of the uh, unfortunate odor which things like uh, abscesses and fungating tumors may have, Uh, tactful and sensitive ways of dealing with uh, incontinence. None of these problems are insuperable, none of us would want them, but they're not insuperable Uh, and they can be dealt with in a way that's compatible with human dignity. I think the answer to the pro euthanasias lobby's cry of death with dignity, in fact, is the very opposite. I think what we need to provide for our patients, and what we can provide, is life with dignity. Life with dignity to the very end, and that is our goal.
0: Inevitably, contention in matters of life and death passes from the hands of medical doctors to the hands of lawyers and courts of justice. During the recent worldwide hubbub over the lethal injection for the terminally ill, a major attempt was made in the U.S. to sanction that practice in law. Here to speak about it is the author of California's Humane and Dignified Death Act.
13: My wife died of cancer uh, a couple of years ago. We had gone to the Bahamas in search of some alternate cancer treatments, and after my wife's death, I decided that I would try and do something about correcting the, the a situation that I really felt needed to be corrected. That is, it shouldn't be a crime uh, for a dying person to get some help with their dying. We can't asked the treating physician to help us die under these conditions today because of laws that exist in every state in this union which prevent physicians from helping actively helping us die on our request i decided to take the california natural death act which by the way is the first statute in this country uh, of the living will sort and uh, rewrite it and combine it with the uh, durable power of attorney for health care which was enacted in 1983 in california so i put those two statutes together and then grafted upon that statute the right to request and receive affirmatively physician assistance in dying
0: the compelling question is this Is the Humane and Dignified Death Act, as it is called, a prescription for a peaceful and merciful death? Or is it a proposal that would unleash a process that cannot be controlled?
14: For the past several years, I've been working full-time, essentially, in medical malpractice defense. I know what the insurance companies are thinking. I know what the doctors are thinking. There's an awful lot of doctors out there who are far more concerned about their medical malpractice problems than they are about their patients. And if you you legalize euthanasia, what you're going to do is to put all the pressure on the side of killing the patient.
15: Well, when you start authorizing or extending the right to kill to other than the normal situations such as justifiable homicide or excusable homicide, you're creating a Pandora's box of horrors. Uh, I could justify the killing of Bobby Kennedy if I were Sirhan Sirhan and said I had a good motive. My motive was to help my country because I thought that person was against my country. That's an impossible situation. You can't justify killing on someone's personal belief of their right or the goodness in taking that human
11: life. I was speaking with a with a colleague at one day um, about... <laughs> about the use of morphine. And he said um, um, uh, uh, morphine was a dangerous drug. I said, well, um, you can you must give heroic doses of, of morphine to kill a patient. And then he said, yes, you're right, because uh, I remember now, uh, at one day there was an, an elderly gentleman and who was probably going to die very uh, soon, But his children wanted to go on holiday, and they did not want to come back to uh, go to uh, for the funeral of their father. But it only shows, I mean, uh, the motives some people uh, apply uh, euthanasia.
14: And you can take a son who loves his mother. He really loves her, but he knows that she's going to die anyway, or at least he's convinced himself that he's going to die anyway. And he will then think, if I leave mom in the hospital, all it's going to do in the next two weeks, it'll give her two weeks more of life, which isn't really high quality, and it's going to eat up that $100,000, and think of how I could use it for the living.
15: They would write a law and saying, uh, if the person desires it, and it is not shown that he has changed his mind, uh, even though the person is now unable to make a decision it is permissible for a physician or some other person uh, to commit the uh, quote voluntary euthanasia you've created a law where involuntary euthanasia is permitted
3: we practice involuntary euthanasia at the moment with the permission of the courts Uh, they've taken the water supply of water and food disconnected and over two or three weeks they starve to death Uh, We think that it's far more honest. Once that decision has been made to starve them to death, it would be far more honest and frank and compassionate to give an injection.
15: Well, the argument that voluntary euthanasia does not lead to involuntary euthanasia is bunk, Because the person that voluntarily wants to die is rarely in a situation where he is making an informed, knowledgeable uh, decision that is not based upon some depressive state, some uh, state of feeling, despondent, and that person can easily be talked into when others feel it is beneficial to have that person die,
11: of course, people always talk about voluntary euthanasia, but in, in practice, you cannot distinguish between the two.
15: Active euthanasia is an act of killing, ostensibly to create a good death for a merciful reason. That's why it's sometimes called mercy killing.
0: But it's really a euphemism for first-degree murder. Behind all this term and drying over changing the laws, a revolution is being quietly fostered in the courts. In the case, for instance, of Anna Hearth, one physician's integrity in a dispute over care he gave to an incompetent patient came into conflict and a court action erupted. Anna Hearth's physician, Dr. Alan Jay, refused to obey a court order to remove her feeding tube.
8: The judge involved in the case indicated that uh, it was the family's prerogative to determine what medical care would be given to the patient and indicated that at the family's request specifically at the daughter's request that all nourishment medication and fluids be withheld from the patient i was dismayed to hear that uh, court in these United States would order a physician, or for that matter any individual, to actively participate in the termination of another individual's life when neither one of these individuals wanted that to happen as far as we knew. My involvement in the case of Anna Hearth
12: last year in San Diego was as the lawyer for uh, the family, the daughter. I also believed I was representing Mrs. Hirth, but the court, in its uh, wisdom, decided to appoint a local
8: attorney who, to putatively to represent the unconscious Mrs. Firth. I came to the conclusion that I had uh, no right to do this and, furthermore, I had a moral and ethical obligation not to be involved in this act. I believe the daughter uh, realized that I was not going to go along with these instructions she had indicated to me before the court the case went to court that she wanted me to withdraw the um, feeding and the nourishment Uh, when i refused it was then taken to court and then the judge came to the conclusion that virtually all other
12: judges have come to across the country in the last 12 years and that is that the patient directly or through a surrogate had the right to refuse medical treatment
8: uh, in that case, this would result in the death of my patient uh, by starvation and dehydration. Ultimately, the daughter removed me from the case. However, we did receive information approximately one week later.
5: And Mrs.
12: Firth was uh, soon thereafter translated to heaven.
11: Removal of nutrition and hydration. What is it aimed at? The only aim can be to make the patient die. Um, So in fact it is euthanasia which is intentional killing. And until now they don't really accept that feeding
2: is also medical treatment and in that case it should be senseless medical treatment. So until now we are feeding these these patients uh, up to 11 years now and we have 50 of these patients in Holland. Uh, We just started uh, court cases to see if we can have the possibility to stop this
11: really, in my opinion, really senseless treatment. But I have seen uh, patients after a long time, some, uh, after several years, coming back to normal life again. A society which can afford
9: 20,000 respirators can afford using them in 100 hopeless cases. What a society cannot afford is a moral and legal warrant to kill.
0: The anti-euthanasia position has some extremely important precepts. Life-sustaining treatment should not be foregone with the intention of procuring death. Treatment may be foregone when it cannot alter the dying process or when it is excessively burdensome in terms of discomfort, repugnance or cost. Artificially provided nutrition and hydration in an unconscious patient Is ordinarily not burdensome and should not be foregone in order to bring about death. We may very well be looking in the future
8: at a situation where terminal illness is not a major criteria for voluntary euthanasia and I have no doubt that this slippery slope will lead us into a very difficult situation for physicians, patients, family and the rest of society.
0: Everyone involved is conscious of the slippery slope. The pros say it can't happen here, the anti say it can't fail to happen here. It's time to take a hard look at the infamous Nazi connection.
16: Many people, when they view the Nazi Holocaust, they see it as an outburst of lawless behavior. But the record shows very clearly that the killing of the handicapped, the Jews, the gypsies, the asocials in the Third Reich was a very legal matter. In fact, there were over 400 laws, ordinances, and decrees passed against Jews and others leading up to the final solution. There were many individuals agitating for the killing of Germany's so-called unfit long before Hitler came to power. For example, in the late 1800s, Dr. Ernst Haeckel, who was both a biologist, a scientist, and a philosopher, was talking about getting rid of Germany's unfit, and he said that we can no longer have them existing among us uh, because they constitute lives which are uh, not worth living. They're they're worthless, they have very little value. Uh, Doctors uh, Binding, Alfred, uh, Carl Binding, and Alfred Hoke in a book called The Release of the Destruction of Life Devoid of Value, written in 1920, continued the legacy uh, started by Ernst Haeckel. Now, you may ask, well, what does that all have to do with euthanasia today? I would submit to you that we have many parallels here. First of all, the two methods that were used extensively in the Third Reich, imposed starvation and the administration of lethal injections. The other question is uh, the slippery slope. Will we start bringing in voluntary
6: euthanasia
3: for competent people? Will people take advantage of our law, try and extend our proposed law and move into mental asylums and handicap people's homes and and, uh, eliminate them, as Hitler did? But that's against the law, should always be against the law, moral and criminal.
13: You know, we're questioned about the slippery slope and what happens, and it's a clear line. If somebody else is telling me that I am to die, that's wrong. If I am requesting it, that's right, because it's my life.
16: The doctors involved today, of course, also are killing their patients in institutions where they are supposed to be healing human lives instead of killing them. Hippocrates' code marked a turning point in the history of medicine. It represented the first time there was a complete separation effected between killing and healing. From that point on, physicians were never again to be killers, but
0: preeminently healers of human life. Hippocrates, the Greek physician who lived about 400 BC, is sometimes called the father of modern medicine because of his profound insight into the ethics of medical practice. For centuries, at the conclusion of their medical training, physicians have taken what they call the Hippocratic Oath, which says in part, I will give no deadly medicine if I ask nor suggest such counsel.
16: Only two times in the 20th century has the Hippocratic Oath been dropped from medical schools during the 12 years of the Third Reich and in contemporary society. Does this go against the Hippocratic Oath? Well,
3: that's easily answered. Half of American doctors don't swear the Hippocratic Oath when they leave medical school. It was an old piece of history designed two and a half thousand years ago in Greece. When abortion became law throughout the Western world, it was rewritten to delete the prohibition on abortion. Uh, I don't see any reason why it can't be rewritten to delete the prohibition on euthanasia. The Hippocratic Oath must move with the times, just like everybody else and everything else.
16: When today's uh, advocates of euthanasia say that the Hippocratic Oath is just obsolete, it's a piece of paper, it has no relationship to modern society, We should remind them this is precisely what the 20 doctors on trial for crimes against humanity at Nuremberg said. Now, the ideology that exists today to back up euthanasia is the same ideology that buttressed uh, euthanasia in the Third Reich. It was called lives not worth living. It was a quality of life ideology all of this manifests what is called the slippery slope that is when you start saying that it's all right to kill you start drawing the line and the line becomes extended to engulf more and more victims now this is precisely what happened in the third reich personally i'm a little bit afraid for slippery
2: slope in the next century i'm not so sure that uh, the moment that there will be the most elderly people in the world and the less young to, 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 to keep them alive or to take care for their uh, in nursing homes and so, that uh, maybe the public opinion in, in, in that time, maybe 40, 56 years from, uh, from now, uh, they will say what a senseless uh, life that is.
0: The charge certainly rings in the ears, the charge that the social case against the absolute right of the useless person to live is eased by laws that permit euthanasia, never mind the modest motives of the laws backers. Is a potentially a victim class? Perhaps it will clarify the arguments to look at some people who would appear to have obvious claim to be members
17: of that class. I think the proponents of euthanasia want a society that's free of pain, Uh, free of suffering, and I think the the way that they think uh, they can go about doing that, uh, at least initially, is to offer death as an alternative to to those who are in pain and those who are suffering. But it very quickly becomes uh, something even more than that. I think as they become aware uh, of the fact that watching people suffer uh, is painful, and watching pain is painful, uh, it soon turns into something much uglier and that's death uh, for those that uh, are painful to society to see. I think people uh, would like to view us many times and in fact do as, as not being a part of society at all uh, and therefore see us uh, as a very costly uh, part of society and, and almost want to build a disability-free uh, world. Um, I've had friends uh, say to me that um, if they had my disability, that they would commit suicide. Uh, I'm an ordained minister and served in the ministry for uh, for seven years. Um, I'm also uh, married, uh, recently a father. Uh, and so I think you can see my life is, uh, is very rich with the things that are uh, very human uh, and normally in rich life. I, I'd like to point out that I think part of that richness in my life uh, is my disability. Uh, that uh, that offers me a dimension of, uh, of human experience that is not uh, uh, just uh, negative, but uh, gives me insights into what it means to be a human being and what, uh, what humanity is all about.
18: In August of 1982, uh, my husband went into the hospital for surgery. Uh, he was told he needed a fusion or a cervical laminectomy, and cord decompression. Um, That operation took about four hours. And when I first found him, uh, and I saw that he was so cyanotic blue, um, and he was on a respirator, and it was hard to tell that he was alive except for the heart monitor that was going. Uh, his eyes were wide open, just as if he were dead. And uh, one night, a doctor on call came in, and the first thing he said to me was, Mrs. Hutcherson, he said, uh, you might want to consider making him an no code blue. He's in pretty bad shape. What he wanted to do was have permission to not respond if he should get in trouble. they just let him go, totally callous. I was shocked beyond belief, and so he remained in this deep coma, like I said, ex- except when I would walk into the hospital room where he had opened his eyes, and then he closed them when anyone else would come in. Uh, the only time that I let myself uh, cry around him was uh, when I remembered how nice his smile was. and. And I cried a little bit, and I told him I just longed to see him smile again. And That was two weeks before we left the hospital. And so the day that uh, came for us to take him home, uh, all the nurses had come into his room, and they were helping pack him up. And he opened his eyes, and he turned his head to me, and he smiled, the most glorious smile that I've ever seen. As, As soon as he was home, was awake 16 hours a day, and asleep eight hours a day, just like anyone. Uh, his eyes have grown more and more intelligent, steadily, and so now they can focus well, and they can turn to the person who's talking to him. Uh, he turns his head now to the person who's talking to him. I've been able to ask him a lot of questions. Um, one of the main ones that I've asked him is, uh, do you want to live? and he always says yes, and there's just no doubt about it.
0: The euthanasia controversy presents us with advocates who stress two different objectives. There are those who favor killing in order to save the patient the misery of living, and those others who are devoted to sparing the patient the miseries of dying. The hospice is the laboratory in which these latter spirits operate.
19: The hospice movement is on the opposite side of the debate from our own voluntary euthanasia society in this country. In no way do we ever think it is right to administer a lethal injection, nor indeed do we ever think it's necessary either. Uh, You can control pain, you can relieve symptoms, you can support people, and it is very rare indeed for them still to ask to be killed. But uh, the hospice movement as a whole, um, I think I can speak for because I wrote round to all the medical directors of all the English hospices just recently, had an 80% response, and every single one of them would not take part in any form of euthanasia people can be freed of their symptoms and very much alert and themselves i was taking somebody around the other day and there was hardly anybody in bed not because the beds were empty nobody wanting to come but because they were out in the garden they were out in the day rooms they were out for drives or they were home for the weekend and it is often surprising to people to find what a very cheerful place a hospice can be of course there is sorrow but there is also the very great intensity of using what you know is a limited time. Hospice isn't only about physical pain. It is about mental or emotional pain. It's about family pain and it's about spiritual pain. It's the search for meaning. And I think nothing can more detract from a person's own feeling of the meaning of their lives then it, you should suggest to them that it would be a good thing if it were shortened.
20: And so the final journey leaving home and coming to a hospice can be quite traumatic. This is my last journey. I'm leaving home for the last time. I won't see my family. And this is where I'm going to die. Now we proceed to uh, revert all that back to uh, a much more normal procedure, namely where the person becomes accepted as one of us and this is where the patient suddenly discovers I am living that would be the beginning of our approach to a person he is new he is different he is special and he is living now the sooner we can get the person to discover that for himself and move from I am dying to I am living that is hospice care Uh, Perhaps people don't realize the amount of integration that can actually take place in the last stages of life, integration in the sense of actual um, recuperation of broken relationships, recuperation of self-identity, being able to say sorry, being able to say I love you, being able to say thank you.
12: You may see an antagonistic mother-in-law and son-in-law uh, fall into each other's arms around the, the, the bed of a young woman who's, who's dying. If you see two brothers who haven't spoken for 30 years walk arm-in-arm away from the the bedside of their dying mother, you know a healing has taken place. And we would throw all that away if we were to adopt euthanasia as
0: a convenient and tidy end to a patient's life. The average length of time a patient lives at St. Christopher's, St. Joseph's or Trinity is only three weeks. Then the patients are dead. Yet professional personnel at the hospices are unanimous in affirming that the patients never request euthanasia. The patients' total physical, psychological, and spiritual needs are met to their very last day. Ernie, whom you see here, is dying of widely metastasized cancer. He is free of pain, happy and alert, able to appreciate his last days.
9: The care I'm getting at this place is something really out of this world actually I've never seen <coughs> sorry I've never seen people like them from top of the staff to the bottom everyone gives you warm care and the necessity for this I think is helps the patient as much as even the medicine does and I think it's a wonderful thing to have these people about.
0: The lethal injection with which we began this documentary seemed, may still seem the obvious solution to a finite problem. The temptation is always attractive to put an end to pain or discomfort, but we need to examine the implications of a policy based on that mandate. What has become apparent is that we must look beyond the interests of the individual patient who asks that his life be terminated. We must look at the effects of euthanasia on the family, on medicine, on government, and on society as a whole. Only then can we appreciate the dangers to mankind of this apparently compassionate practice.